Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. The Trump administration says no more dollars going to the U.N. Climate Fund. It will now collapse as other nations won't be able or will simply refuse to make up the deficit. So what happens to the $2.6 billion Justin Canada's back Trudeau committed to this U.N. fund? Uh, another Barack Obama signature moments are erased by the new guy. All right. We're going to... Uh, we're going to talk about this whole issue of climate change, climate funding, the United States participation, Canada's participation. And so I just essentially read to you what my conventional wisdom was until about 20 minutes ago. And then 20 minutes ago, I read something that I hadn't seen before, and that is that President Trump may be hedging his bet somewhat on canceling funding for the U.N. Climate Fund. His uh, director of, I think it's budgets, the budget office, um, said, look, that funding is over and done with, but is Mr. Trump wavering somewhat, and perhaps because of his daughter and son-in-law's uh, influence? Dr. Timothy Ball is with us, Canadian climatologist, as you well know from this program. His book is Human-Caused Global Warming, The Greatest Deception in History. Also with us, Myron Bell. He's the Director of Global Warming and International Environmental Policy at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, and was chosen by President Trump to administer the Environmental Protection Agency during the transition from the Obama government to the Trump administration. Uh, Myron, great to speak with you. Thanks for having me. And, uh, Tim, great to have you back on the show always. Well, thank you, Roy. Thanks for the opportunity. Myron, what's the, uh, what's the actual truth of the situation? Has Mr. Trump canceled the all-U.S. funding for the climate initiative of the United Nations, or, or is, is he hedging his bets? Uh well, I think it's uh, uh, during the campaign, President Trump uh, pledged to withdraw from the Paris Climate Treaty and to defund U.N. climate programs, including the Green Climate Fund. Now, the, the initial budget request uh, from the uh, Trump administration to Congress, it looks to me, they, they haven't filled out all the details, but it looks like they are... Uh, keeping that promise uh, to defund the various, uh, the Green Climate Fund and other related funds that are part of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. Whether they will defund the entire program, including our something like $12 million a year funding to the UN Framework Convention itself, uh, I'm not sure, and we'll have to see. But, but the kicker to all that is it's Congress that appropriates the money not the administration. So it's up to Congress to decide how far to go in defunding U.N. climate programs. You, uh, you urged President Trump on Friday from a story that I read again earlier today that he should not waver on, on this issue of climate funding. No, that's right. I think um, the, uh, the commitments that uh, President Trump made during the campaign are very clear on climate and energy and they're very closely connected. That is to say, it's it's a it's a prefix menu. You have to take the whole thing, or problems arise if you try to choose a la carte. So I think um, he needs to uh, to say, I'm going to um, uh, keep all of my commitments. I'm not going to pick and choose. And I think uh, only in that way will we get clear of this. Uh, uh, nightmare that we've had for the last 20 years of, of international uh, treaty, one, one international agreement after another to spend money on uh, climate change. The uh, former President Obama described AGW, the anthropomorphic, whatever that word is, uh, global warming. <laughs> <laughs> when I get to the third syllable, I'm stuck. <laughs> Anthro, whatever the rest of it is. Uh, global warming as the greatest threat to the world, even more so than ISIS and any other terror group. And that was uh, echoed by uh, John Kerry, the Secretary of State, or former Secretary of State, just recently. How far off base are they uh, on, on, this, on, on the uh, claim that's made that it's the greatest threat to the world, climate change? Roy, I think uh, Tim is a better uh, judge of that than I am, but I think... Um if you look at the kinds of threats that face humanity, 
global warming uh, is a, a very modest uh, threat, and it looks like it will remain that way as far into the future as we can see. It may provide some challenges if there is some warming, but these are the kinds of challenges that modern technological societies are very good at handling. And so uh, my, my view is it's, uh, it's way down on the list, and uh, the other point I would make is that if we wanted, if we believe the theory and we want to solve the problem, the costs of doing so are uh, many times more than the possible impacts of the warming. So this is a, a huge cost to the, to the global economy with very little benefit. Yeah. Tim, uh, just after the Paris conference, attended by our government with almost 400 uh, people in that delegation. Um, I don't think anybody was left in Ottawa. But uh, right after that, uh, during it, after the uh, conference, I spoke with Dr. Bjorn Lomborg, who, of course, believes in human-induced global warming, but is also a huge skeptic of UN funding programs. And he said on the show that uh, if a trillion dollars is gathered from various global economies and, and, and world governments and put into the UN Climate Fund, the difference it will make to the actual climate on the planet is totally negligible, totally negligible. It's just a waste of a massive amount of money. Well, I, I agree with that. Uh, I'm, I I pointed out, I think, when I was on with your program before, that Lomborg is a statistician, and that's fine. Um, so I'm, I'm not convinced, and I've read all he's written, that he totally understands the, uh, the climate part of it. Uh, but but uh, the argument that human CO2, which is such a fraction of uh, even the very small amount of CO2 that is the, uh, the gas in the atmosphere that they're talking about, um, is of any significance. In fact, the human contribution to the atmosphere is within the error factor of the measurement of two or three of the natural sources of CO2. Um, so that's one of the problems. Uh, the bigger problem uh, overall is that um, the, all of the forecasts, uh, that they've made about oh if CO2 increases the temperature increases and they've they've predicted uh, anywhere up to uh, 11 degrees Celsius at one point um, every single prediction they've made using those computer models uh, has been wrong and and of course and if the, if one of their predictions was was right you could say well okay maybe but not one single one has been right. And um, as, uh, as it is said in science, if your forecast is wrong, your science is wrong. And that's the difficulty. And, of course, what Lomborg is, is saying is, look, the, the science is pretty questionable. And if you're going to spend trillions of dollars on a problem that you're not really very sure about, um, what, how could you better spend that money? And this is what Prime Minister Modi in India has said. And, and so th this is the, the, the difficulty. The other problem is, with it is that um, uh, the evidence, both uh, in terms of temperature measurements and in, in the science of what causes climate change, is that uh, the Earth is heading into a cooling trend. And uh, so we might just be uh, in the situation of preparing for warming when, when it's actually cooling. And uh, the final point that I'll make is that it was acknowledged, even by people like David Suzuki and others, and Tom Wigley, who was one of the main architects of the, the whole global warming due to CO2 issue, with the original Kyoto, they admitted that even if the entire Kyoto Protocol was introduced, and that is with the reduction and, of course, the great transfer of wealth, which is what it was really all about, even if the whole Kyoto was introduced, and, and the way I explain it is uh, you introduce the whole Kyoto Protocol, and um, you you take everybody off the planet and, and then leave one scientist behind to measure the difference, it, she wouldn't be able to measure any difference. Mm -hmm. So in other words, that, that the, all of these plans, even, even with the Paris Climate Agreement, that, that the effect is, is absolutely, uh, totally insignificant. And of course, that's what Lombard's speaking to. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.
Myra Nebel is the Director of Global Warming and International Environmental Policy at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. He was the head of the EPA during the administration uh, turnovers, changeovers from uh, Obama to Trump. And uh, with us is all, of course, Dr. Timothy Ball, Canadian climatologist. His book, Human-Caused Global Warming, The Greatest Deception in History. Myron, when you arrived at the EPA representing uh, President Trump, uh, the, the place had a massive budget, a massive bureaucracy, and great power to disrupt people's lives. And I've heard some terrible stories like a pond that forms because of rain suddenly being declared to have environmental uh, properties that had to be saved from the people whose property it was on. Just a pond formed by rain that would eventually, when the ground dried, disappear. Um, a staff of some 15,000, and uh, I understand there's going to be some significant staff cuts. What did you encounter, and what was most disturbing about the EPA? Uh, Roy, I should clarify, I was head of the transition team. I was never actually in charge of the EPA. I see, okay. Uh, uh, so what I, what I discovered when we went in to do interviews is uh, that we have an agency here in the United States that is very committed to an agenda. They are, uh, you know, they are supposed to be objective civil servants who carry out the, uh, the policies of the elected leaders of the country. But in fact, they have their own agenda uh, and uh, they are, uh, you know, pretty, pretty uniformly committed to it. Now, I think uh, you said it has a massive budget. It's it's pretty small in terms of the entire federal budget. It's eight billion dollars a year. But as you said, it has enormous regulatory powers. And so uh, President Trump said during the campaign he wanted to uh, abolish the EPA or leave a little bit of it. And then he, he modified that or qualified it to say he likes the state, gr the grants to our states from the federal government to the states. And he likes the idea of devolving powers to the state environmental agencies. Um, and so I think the first budget that the uh, the White House is sending to the to the Congress calls for a 31 percent cut in the in the in the eight billion dollars. Most of that on the federal side, and it calls for a reduction of employees by 3,200 or over 20 percent of the total workforce. So that's what the administration has asked Congress for. But as I said before, it's up to Congress to to decide how to spend the money. So we'll see. This is going to be a big fight over the next six to eight months. Yeah, I can imagine. They're not the most popular uh, election victory, Donald Trump's for the EPA. What about this issue of the carbon tax? No carbon tax for the United States. Not going to happen. But Canada, we're going to, we, in some places we already have the carbon tax, other places. It is definitely going to arrive, says the prime minister, and it will be for the betterment of the country and create hundreds of thousands of exciting green sector jobs. Is, is the carbon tax ever an issue in, in the United States? Uh, well, of course, some of our states uh, have something like carbon tax. I mean, California has a cap-and-trade system. With Quebec and Ontario. Uh, right, right. So um, I, I think what we see in the United States is that uh, the Obama administration was trying to turn the entire country into a model of uh, along, the, along the lines of the California economy. Uh, with very high energy prices, uh, the middle class moving out, uh, energy intensive industries closing down and moving either to the to the heartland states like Indiana and Ohio or moving overseas to China. Uh, so I think uh, that was the model for Obama. I think President Trump's victory uh, means that the we're, we're going to have a divergent economy, just like I think you do in Canada, where some of, some of our states continue down this path of energy rationing, high energy prices, impoverishing people, and some of the states are now free to pursue uh, an abundant energy future. Manufacturing is coming back, chemical, uh, particularly chemicals, uh, and uh, higher energy production in places like Texas and North Dakota. So I think we're going to have, like you do in Canada, we're going to have sort of two separate economies. Mm -hmm. Well, we certainly, uh, well, sometimes it seems like we have more than two in this country. <laughs> we only have, uh, we have, of course, have the uh, thriving and flourishing underground economy. T Tim, in about 20 seconds, uh, th th this whole 
you know, the often repeated 97, 97.7% of the world's scientists support human-induced global warming position. Just respond to that one more time, please. Well, that was a, a paper published by a, a John Cook in Queensland University in Australia. And uh, when you actually looked at what he had done, um, he, he completely um, or, or misapplied his own definition of, of scientists that were in support of, of glo- the anthropogenic. Let me let me let me. Now you said the word, and I'm going to have practice. Uh, can you stick around, both of you, for a couple of minutes longer? Sure. As I just have a, one yeah. or two more questions I'd like to ask. You're listening to the Roy Green Show weekends from two to five on AM 900 CHML. We tried for a long time to generate a debate between the true believers in uh, in, in human-induced global warming and uh, uh, Dr. Ball and, and, and a few other people on uh, his side of the argument. Even even Elizabeth May, who was uh, then the, I don't know, I can't remember whether she was the president of the Green Party then or not, or just the past president of the Sierra Club. Anyway, Elizabeth May contacted a number of people a number of scientists on the UN side of the argument and tried to persuade them to get involved in the debate, but nobody, nobody, nobody would. The uh, people who said no, yeah, they were ready to go immediately. The people who follow the IPCC, we still haven't heard from them, and it's been years. Uh, Gentlemen, President Trump has endorsed the Keystone XL pipeline. What else might this president decide to do? Refossil fuels fueling the world as they have for decades. Uh, Myron, I, I guess I'll start with you, and then I'll go directly to Tim for his thoughts, and we'll bring in Canada and our, and our production capabilities and whether the prime minister of this country seems to see any value for what's going on in the province of Alberta. Myron, what do you say? Uh, Roy, uh, President, President Trump during the campaign uh, said that not only would he uh, see to the very quick permitting of the Keystone Pipeline and the finishing of, the, of another pipeline, the Dakota Access Pipeline, but that he would um, take the actions necessary uh, to remove the impediments that have been placed on energy production and transmission during the Obama administration. Uh, uh, President Obama took credit for uh, the increase in oil and gas production, but of course he did everything he could to slow it down and stop it. It, it, The the shale gas revolution uh, occurred on private land on federal land in the West and in Alaska and offshore areas, the Obama administration has tried to stop oil and gas production. They've tried to slow walk the permitting of pipelines and transmission lines. They've tried to stop and slow walk permitting terminals, coal, coal export terminals, oil and gas, term, oil terminals and, and LNG terminals. And so uh, President Trump said, we're going to get rid of all that and we're going to go for uh, much higher energy production the United States will become the world's energy superpower, and this will change the geopolitical balance. That was the argument of his campaign, and he has already started to take those actions. Tim, keeping that in uh, in perspective and looking at what we're doing in this country, uh, as far as, the, again, the carbon tax is concerned, and uh, I, I'm not quite sure of whether the prime minister's heart is in pipelines or not. I think it's probably an issue of convenience to him, depending on what the political climate of the week is. But what do you make of all of that? Yeah, well, of course, he, he has said that he uh, supports the pipeline and he's prepared to talk to Trump about the NAFTA and so on. But as you said, how much of that is political convenience uh, yeah. because our economy is so tied? But one of the things that I think is very critical in all of this is you see the massive difference between the American form of government and the Canadian form of government. Uh, with the checks and balances that they had in the U.S., uh, Obama had this problem that every time he wanted to introduce uh, uh, an energy policy or anything like that, it had to be vetted through Congress. Congress had to pay for it and agree with it. And you see that, for example, uh, he could not call the Paris climate uh, a treaty because if it if he did it had to be approved by 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 uh, congress and he knew that wasn't going to happen so they they called it an agreement and um, and then they had the problem the minute the other countries knew it was an agreement they most many of them were not prepared to sign up on it and um, uh, so they had to make it non-binding so it's really a meaningless thing and, and, of course, one of the things that Myron talked about was the use of bureaucracy to end-run the people and the legislative process. 
And uh, this is what's been going on in the U.S., but it is also what happened with the climate issue, because Maurice Strong, who set the whole thing up, uh, did it through the World Meteorological Organization, that is, through the bureaucrats in the national weather offices in every country in the world. And, of course, the, the difficulty is that uh, in, in many countries, the bureaucrats are simply not accountable to, to the citizens. It's got to be done through politicians. So uh, what we've seen is a, uh, uh, an abuse of the system and running the people and the people's control of things and, and uh, in order to uh, achieve a, a, an agenda. And sadly, for something on which the science, there is absolutely no scientific support. You know, there's, uh, there's something else here that, uh, that I wanted to bring up, and, and that is U.S. funding, again, the withdrawal to end uh, America's contri- contributions to the climate fund's existence. And I've read it will take three years to decouple from the fund, which Obama committed the United States to, as Tim pointed out, but through executive action. But that another option for President Trump is to pull the United States out of the umbrella U.N. climate organization the U.N. Framework Convention on Climate Change, or UNFCCC, uh, which would pull the U.S. out of the climate fund within a year. That could change everything again. Well, yes. And sorry, Mary, just to jump in for a minute. Uh, Maurice Strong set up the UNFCCC, uh, in, uh, and it was part of the um, original Rio conference in, in 1982, and that was when also the, they set up the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change for, to produce the science that they wanted to prove that C, human CO2 was the problem. Mm. And they did that by narrowing the definition of climate change to only looking at human causes. And, of course, uh, you can't possibly identify the human cause if you don't know how, what the causes are naturally. And, and so the UNFCCC, yes, if they just pull out from that, that basically uh, brings the whole thing to an end. Yeah. Is that likely to happen, Myron? Uh, there is debate within the administration. Um, uh, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson uh, gives every appearance of going native uh, as soon as he gets here. Uh, he said he wants to stay in uh, the, the Paris Climate Treaty and the underlying U.N. Framework Convention Treaty. Uh, President Trump's daughter and son-in-law, Jared, uh, Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner, have said that they want the, uh, their father uh, to stay in the Paris Climate Treaty. Um, I think there are very powerful forces within the administration that are pushing back. I don't think President, it's, I don't think this argument has come up to the level of President Trump yet, but I expect him to keep his commitments because uh, he has made a big deal out of this. That that that. that the things he said in the campaign, he is going to achieve. So I, I, I'm hopeful that he will not listen to his daughter and son-in-law or to Secretary Tillerson, and he'll say, I'm going to do what I said I was going to do. Because, in fact, these are the people who voted for him. That's one of the reasons he won the election, because he had this pro-energy, anti-climate alarm agenda, and that's why he won states like Michigan and Wisconsin. Right. Right. in Pennsylvania. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Myron and Bell, Dr. Tim Ball, uh, we'll, we'll call on you again as the story develops, but thanks so much. Thank you, Roy. Thank you, Roy. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Now, I want you to imagine being the mother of a child uh, and another mother says this to you. It's almost... It's almost it's hard to believe someone would would, would be so um, thoroughly cruel. Another mother said, "You deserve to have your child die." And why? Because my guest Rachel, who's decided to not vaccinate her child, is attending school with vaccinated children. And Rachel told me she's unsure what uh, Alberta's Bill Twenty Eight might mean to her and her child. And it's provincial legislation focused on children being vaccinated. Now, just to be fair to everybody, so we all know what this is about. I took a look at uh, Bill 28 information from the Alberta government's website. And I'll just read you a little bit of what they say. Uh, Government is addressing these issues. Well, current immunization rates in the province are not high enough to prevent outbreaks of some vaccine-preventable diseases. When an outbreak occurs in a school, health professionals must track down missing student immunization records which slows their ability to respond to the outbreak and protect children's health. 
Government is addressing these issues with proposed amendments to the Public Health Act. Bill 28 would facilitate more efficient collection of student enrollment information to help identify students with incomplete immunization records, contact with parents and students who do not have complete immunization records to request immunization information, provide information on the benefits of immunization and the risks of not immunizing if needed, explain current policy that requires unimmunized students to stay home in the event of an outbreak. Parents of students with missing immunization information will be asked to provide the student's immunization record. Just a little more here. Complete or update missing immunizations. Provide a letter indicating a medical exemption has been granted or sign a form indicating they choose not to immunize immunize their child. Parents who decide not to update their child's immunization information will be informed they're required to keep their children home if certain highly contagious vaccine preventable diseases such as measles occurs at their school. In some cases, children may need to stay home for several weeks. That's from the Alberta government. Let me say hello to Rachel, who uh, she and I uh, talked a couple of days ago and after after I received a, an email from her. Hi, Rachel. Hi. Uh, it's good to talk to you, and I, I would like you, if you would, just explain to our listeners why it is you, you contacted me. Why was it important to get you know, to tell the story, your story and your and your child's story. Well, I uh, with the recent mumps outbreak, it's kind of what brought it to the forefront for me. Uh, I decided to write my MLA a letter, uh, an email regarding the Bill 28 and what it means for the safety of my child, frankly, um, and also needing some clarification about the bill because it just seems so difficult to find information about it. Um, and so anyways, you know, I read the email to my father and, and it was probably about a week later and he said, you know, I really, I really, really feel that this issue needs to, to get out there and it's a problem and, and we need to address it. And, you know, I really think you should email that letter to the Roy Green Show and uh, see what happens. And I was petrified because of the thought of being attacked. Um, and I thought, but you know, that, that's the problem here. That is the problem is, is being attacked. So, um, that's what I did. I, I emailed it and we went from there. So we have a lot to talk about and I'm glad you did get in touch with me because it is an issue that needs to be discussed. Yeah. And and we need to hear the parents who've made the decisions not to vaccinate their children. I spoke with Andrew Wakefield, who of course was the center of, uh, of so much of the controversy over immunizing and not immunizing, and that was just, uh, I spoke with them twice on the air, and that resulted in several months' worth of uh, emails, people either agreeing or being absolutely just furious yeah. at, uh, at, uh, at what uh, the former Dr. Wakefield said. Um, Rachel, I, I just looking at this, this, uh, this quote, you and I talked about this, and you mentioned that another mother said to you, you deserve to have your child die. I mean, that's so far off the scale. You wonder, how could anybody be so <laughs> cruelly angry yeah. and and say yeah. those words to you? Yeah, I, um, I, was, I was told that I should have my uh, children taken away from me, um, that I should never be allowed to use the hospital, that I should not be allowed to see the doctor for any reason, um, and I hope that uh, my child suffers a vaccine-preventable disease and dies. And I've also been told that my child should have to wear a sign that shows others she's a walking threat to society. So those are the things that were said to me, and um, it shook me to the core, obviously. Um, it made me scared. It made me scared for my daughter, Um and it made me change the way I, I live my life, frankly. Wow. Um, and and the, the reason I, I choose not to, I really don't feel is relevant. That's between me and my doctor. Um, and it was a medical decision that, that we came to together. He helped me um, come to that decision that for the safety of her uh, specifically, it was a medical decision, but that shouldn't matter. You know, are you born with it or is it a chosen lifestyle? It shouldn't matter. It shouldn't matter the reason. And as far as I'm concerned, nobody should ever say those words to any other person 
doesn't matter what the topic. So no, those absolutely words should not. never be said. Absolutely not. That should never be said, and uh, no apology would be no. would, would would do the trick here. That's no. that's that's really really brutal. Nor should you feel that you have an obligation to explain to everyone. Right. This is why my child is not vaccinated because we made a informed decision with the doctor's input. But that's not your responsibility to, to just try no. to make everybody understand because there'll no. still be people who feel the way they do. No, it, it shouldn't it shouldn't matter. It shouldn't matter what what religion you choose, if that's the religion you choose. It shouldn't matter. It, you know, what the reason behind the choice you make for your life and for the the future of your child, it shouldn't matter. No, let me take and, a... um you're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Vaccinations against life-threatening diseases are one of the greatest public health achievements in history. Literally millions of premature deaths have been prevented, and countless more children have been saved from disfiguring illness. There is uh, no question that the official position is that... Um, that vaccination is necessary, that it saves children from illness and saves children from, uh, from, from death. And uh, there is no room, often there's no room for negotiating between the two camps, those who say, yes, you must vaccinate children, and those who say, no, I'm not going to vaccinate my child because my child, my decision, and in Rachel's case, a decision that was made in tandem with, with her doctor. And, uh, and again, when you have someone say to you, you deserve to have your child die, that's absolutely just unconscionably brutal. 800-263-2428 is my number, 1-800-263-2428. Do you have a question for Rachel, the mom who decided that her child's not going to be uh, vaccinated? Uh, you Are you a parent who's decided the same, or do you take a very strong position that vaccination is necessary? We'll talk about this. Rachel, do you uh, do you get a lot of... You're endangering your child. Whether people actually say it out uh, loud to you directly or whether they couch what they say to you somewhat, do you hear that a lot? Uh, well, I mean, I used to. And I, I should say, you know, when you said that person said it to me, it was actually more than one. It was numerous people who said it. Uh, and it was about three years ago when we had a pertussis outbreak. And, um, you know, so obviously there was fear involved. And, and the parents decided to uh, attack me and decided it was my fault that this was happening. Um, and so they justified it. They justified their treatment by, um, you know, in the name of science, in the name of health and, and public safety. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying that you shouldn't vaccinate your child. I'm not, that is not what I'm saying. What I am saying is how you treat me and how you treat my child based on our decision that should be considered just the same as any other medical decision we make with our doctor. It is private. I do not ask your status of your son if he's circumcised. I don't have the right to do that. I don't have the right to judge. I don't have the right to say anything. So what makes you have the right to say it to my child? If my child is HIV positive, they are legally allowed to attend school and not even inform the school. So my child cannot be uh, harassed or, or treated poorly, which they shouldn't be if they were HIV positive, but they can be if they're not vaccinated and they don't have a disease at the time. I mean, it just doesn't, it blows my mind. It blows my mind how people think this is okay. And, and it's all over. And I understand it's a hot button topic. I understand that it's important. Obviously it's the life of our children and, we have to find another way. We have to find a way to work together and and come together and say, okay, you know, I'm not I'm not against them saying if, you know, this is the policy, you have to stay home. But how are we going to respect the privacy and protect the the safety of these children? They don't do it for hepatitis B positive children, but yet my child doesn't have a disease and yet she has to be on a list. And who's going to protect that list? Who's going to have access to that list? What if a parent stormed into that school and said, I have the right to know. You show me that list. What, what, are, what is the protocol? I don't know. You know, it's different in a small, in a small town yeah. than it is in a big city. 
I wanted to ask you about that. Uh, just generally, attitudinally, are things different in, in large urban centers than they would be from maybe in a smaller um, a rural area? Well, yes and no. I think it depends on the area. Um, you know, I've I've had friends of mine um, in a medium-sized city in Alberta. Ha- they've had the same thing. They've actually threatened, you know, death threats against their children. So it, it happens everywhere. But I think the advantage of being in a bigger center is that you can possibly change schools. You can find a, a peer group that is uh, similar to you, and you know when it feels like I'm the only one, um, it's a little different. And and it's um, you know you're the black sheep, so you stick out pretty, pretty. Has strong. it has it been made clear to you uh, that that some parents don't want your child in the classroom, or even in the proximity of of their kids who are vaccinated because they're fearful your child because your child isn't vaccinated could be carrying an illness that. Uh, Passing it on to to their kids. Well, I'm sure it would. Um, Like I said, three years ago, this is what was said. Um, We were actually uh, in a different school at that time. Um, I'm I'm hoping that um, it doesn't come to light. And this was why I wrote the email. I'm trying to keep the the privacy for us. So I, I don't know exactly what would be said, but it's it's the experience I've already had, and then the fear of what could happen. And, you know, fortunately, it didn't happen to my daughter at that time, to her face. But what if? What if it happens this time? What if, you know, the entire school um, gets on board? And, and, you know, just the, the possibility of what could happen to her is what I'm trying to prevent. You're trying to prevent illness by giving a vaccine. Well, I'm trying to prevent cruelty and uh, discrimination against my daughter. So, you know, we're all trying to prevent um, (laughs) bad things from happening to our children. No, you can actually, uh, you can see how a situation such as this might lead to uh, some kids feeling they'd have a a green light to bully your child. Oh, absolutely. If the parents parents question why the child is in school in front of the kids and talk, you know, in, in frightening ways or ways that would frighten their kids, yeah, you could see how your uh, your child would be on the other end of uh, some some bullying yeah. quite quickly. Yeah, that absolutely. that hasn't happened though, right? That hasn't happened. Uh... Well, it hasn't happened. No, um, not yet, and I hope that it doesn't. I that's what I'm trying to stop. And you know, I'm at this time she is still invited to birthday parties, but you know, chances are uh, if this got out and everybody knew our status then all of a sudden guess what oh she wouldn't be welcome to you know have a play date she wouldn't be welcome to do go to the birthday party so you know they they segregate people segregate and and it's happened in history and it's wrong i always think it's wrong so the the people in in the community you live in they don't have they don't all know what your situation is and no. that your daughter hasn't uh, no. your child hasn't been vaccinated no, in fact, she she knows not to say a word. Uh, she's she's pretty sharp. She's pretty. Unfortunately, she's had to be uh, trained on how to avoid the topic and what to say and how to get out of the situation and and how to protect herself. Because um, no way, no way would I ever say anything uh, because it's just too scary. I've already had that happen to me once, and um, I'm hoping and praying that maybe that parent has either forgotten or maybe thought that we vaccinated now. I don't know. But um, I, I'm, I don't know. I'm not going to ask. I'm not going to say, hey, guess what? Do you know this? Uh, I'm not going to risk it. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Petition E983, Parliament of Canada. Petition to the Government of Canada, whereas on March 10th, 2017, the Government of House Leader released a discussion paper regarding changes to the standing orders of the House of Commons. Proposed changes in this discussion paper include eliminating Friday sessions of the House of Commons, permanent limits to debate in the House of Commons and standing committees, and the Prime Minister be required to answer questions on only one day a week in the House of Commons, and 
Transparency of government operations and the ability for all members of Parliament to hold the government to account are of paramount importance to the function of Canadian democracy. We, the undersigned, citizens and residents of Canada, call upon the Government of Canada to adhere to long-standing parliamentary tradition and procedure and not force any changes to the standing orders of the House of Commons outlined in the above-mentioned discussion paper without the unanimous consent of all political parties currently represented in the House of Commons. In other words, some 20-odd thousand Canadians have signed that. E-983, add your voices to it. Uh, in other words, Canadians are saying, no, uh-uh, no. Don't, you're not just going to go to work or, or sit for, for, for four days a week and then have uh, Mr. Trudeau show up for just one day of questioning per week. No. So 20,000 Canadians have signed that petition, E983, and I think it's been around for about 72 hours. Conservative member of Parliament, Michelle Rempel, um, sponsored that petition because it's, uh, Ms. Rempel, it's from a constituent of yours, correct? Hello? Hello? There Hello. you are. It was, it's, uh, Sorry. It, Yes, it's from a constituent of mine. That's correct. Okay, and uh, when you looked at this, when you looked at this, um, the petition when you first sponsored it, did you have any sense how big the numbers would become and and how quickly it would happen on this particular um, imploring of Canadians to get engaged? Absolutely, and I think it's because it's a nonpartisan issue. Um, it doesn't really matter which way you vote. People are really upset that the Prime Minister has the audacity to think that he can change the rules of how we debate. I mean, there is a political cost to every decision that you make in government, and sometimes that's a positive political outcome, and sometimes that's negative. Um, What these changes would do is essentially try to eliminate that for Trudeau and his Liberal government. I, I mean... We can disagree on policy, but I have the right. The reason why, you know, over 100,000 people vote in my riding, I have the right to stand up on their behalf and then put their, put their uh, opinions forward in the House of Commons through debate. And this motion wants to limit my ability to do that. This, or sorry, the, uh, the proposal. The proposal also wants to limit Justin Trudeau's ability to be held to account in the House of Commons. Right now, he has to show up for five question periods a week. If the changes in this proposal came through, he'd only have to show up for work for 45 minutes per week. And that's just ridiculous. Like, I mean, so when you ask, like, how, why do you think that this is going so viral? It's because the average Canadian understands that, look, this isn't about politics. This is about fundamental changes to the Canadian democracy that nobody wants to stand for. And I'm really proud of people for taking the time to sign this and send a message to him that this is not acceptable. I'm not in the least surprised that it's received this response. Uh, and I suspect now that people will know that it's 45 minutes a week that he will be there to answer questions and be accountable to the people of Canada through opposition MP questions. Uh, that's going to drive the petition even further. 45 minutes. Where does the man, honestly, you've been around for, uh, you know, there for the, the Harper government years, um, and, and now Mr. Trudeau, where does someone get the idea that Canadians would be agreeable that he, the Prime Minister, only answers questions for 45 minutes a week? Well, I think that just shows how out of touch he is. I mean, I sit in the House of Commons almost directly across from him, uh, and I watch him when the leader of our party, Rana Ambrose, gets up and asks him questions. You know, he, he almost has this look of, like, how dare you question my policy? So it's this sort of arrogance that, like, you know, people might say, okay, Rempel, you're being a bit partisan here. But no, think about this. Think about the arrogance and the audacity of putting forward a proposal to reduce your work week down to 45 minutes. Like, if you didn't want to work, then why did you sign up for the job? And I think a lot of people who voted for him, you know, again, policy aside, are going to look at this and go, what are you doing? Like, why would you do this? You know, Thomas Mulcair stood up in the House of Commons, the leader of the NDP, and he asked Justin Trudeau, what would Justin Trudeau of 2015 have done if Stephen Harper put these proposals forward? (laughs) 
right? Like, this is pretty draconian stuff. Um, and I think Canadians are just saying, look, I, it doesn't matter what party I belong to, even if I'm a liberal, this is wrong. This is wrong and this is crazy. I just wonder about the person, again, I'm going to go back to what I said, I wonder about the mindset of the person who believes it's going to be acceptable, not only not to, uh, to uh, his colleagues, whatever the party stripe may be in Parliament, but to the majority of Canadians who are paying the bills and who go out and bust their uh, certain parts of their anatomy every single day, <laughs> you know, to, well, to make you know, a living. And, and, and now they don't have the opportunity to say, well, I'm just going to cut back uh, 80% of my work. <laughs> well, you can, but then the boss is going to tell you to might as well turn, turn, cut it back 100%. Well, that, that's just it. And I mean, the other thing, just to reemphasize, it's really egregious to me is that he wants to take away my ability to stand up for my constituents. Um, look, I'm known for being really tough in parliamentary committees. I, you know, I, I ask really tough questions. Uh, I know that his cabinet ministers don't enjoy that particular experience, but it's because a lot of times the legislation or the budgetary figures that they've put forward deserve scrutiny. So I want to be able to use whatever time I need in that committee, which is, by the way, why you pay my salary, to hold the government to account. And this proposal would limit the time that I have to be able to do that. Can you imagine that? They want to permanently limit Canadian members of Parliament the time that they have to debate. Like To me, that's almost like constitutional crisis level. Yeah, I, I it just is. the it audacity is. of and the arrogance of a man to think that he can silence me uh, I think it's worth bringing pitchforks and torches up over. And, you know, the fact, again, that this petition's already at 20,000 signatures, um, you know, I hope everyone who's listening today will go and sign it because it's, 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 a, it's an easy way to send this guy a message that he has to show up for work and he can't take away my voice. What's the number that makes it untenable for him to continue? Well, you know, I don't know. I mean, who knows what goes through the Liberals' mind in terms of numbers of support. I'd like to see it. So the House of Commons is um, uh, on a constituency week this week. We resume sitting again uh, a week Monday. I'd love to see it get over 100,000 signatures this week. Um, If we could get to 200,000, I think that the government would uh, get really antsy. But the other thing that's really working on this is emailing the Liberal members of Parliament that sit on the committee that's trying to ram this through. So Mm -hmm. I, I think there's been over um, 10, between 10 and 20,000 emails that have been sent to these members of Parliament wow. saying, no, you know, I, you can't do this. Uh, we're going to hold you accountable if you do Trudeau's dirty work and ram it through this committee. And I think that that tactic is really important, too, uh, because when, you know, like, for example, if I got 20,000 emails in my office, and I have before, it makes you take notice on something, right? I would say so. so. This, is, this is where the public, like, this is a really easy way just to say, look, we... We're paying your salary for a reason, and it's not just to have an audience. Like, that's the thing. Like, when I watch him, it's like he wants an audience. He doesn't want an opposition. And that's how we develop policy in Canada is you have an opposition that holds the government to account on behalf of the people of Canada so that we come up with good, sound public policy. Um, I just think, you know, like his father, he sees Ottawa and the House of Commons as an annoyance. When it's a fundamental part of our democracy, well, I, we don't I, have the right to speak. We yeah, don't have Canada. I have to tell you, there's lots of Canadians who see the House of Commons as an annoyance, from at least time to time. <laughs> sure. But uh, but but that said, as you were talking, I was thinking desperately: is there something I can say to to defend this man? Because you you were getting pretty, uh, you were going there, and uh, <laughs> and there was just a little partisanship involved as well. So I was thinking, what can I say to defend him? And I can't think of a thing. Well, and that's just—I can't like, think of a thing. There's no reason for me to to defend him from anything you've said, Ms. Rample. Nothing. And that's just it. Like this is to me, this is not. This doesn't have a political stripe, right? This is about how the rules work. Like, so, for example, when we were in government, um, there are procedures that are in, like rules that are already there, where you can, after a certain amount of time. Uh, put it to a vote in the House of Commons, the debate would end and the question would be put, right? Right. But every time you do that, there's a political cost. What he wants to do with this proposal is say, no, we're not going to put it to a vote of the House of Commons to, you know, change the rules of debate. We're just going to ram this through and make it blanket. Like, that's 
that's really arrogant. And, you know, the fact I, I have, when when I'm sitting in, like, solidarity with New Dem, when you've got, like, a pretty hardcore Alberta conservative sitting in solidarity with New Democrat members of Parliament, filibustering a committee, you know something's wrong. Uh, like, this is indefensible. So, it is. It is. you know, I hope people just wake up, and I hope that they sign continue to sign this condition as as big as they are it's it's really this is really really important okay so uh, those seven words roy green's holding on line one that wouldn't scare you though would it um well you never know right (laughs) i guess i'll have to i guess i'll keep me uh, out of trouble there roy i'll I'll try and make sure to think of that in the back of my head anytime i want to do something nefarious (laughs) michelle thank you very much for spending the time with us i appreciate it we'll see what our callers say so much for having me and for raising attention to this issue all the best to you Bye-bye. Thank you. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. I uh, don't know why I read this particular column. I don't know why, but I'm glad I did. It was just one, uh, one of many that I kind of look at, and, and by the end of the week I've maybe read three of them, four of them, out of start on Monday, maybe 60. I'm so glad I read this one by Bill Plaschke of the Los Angeles Times. If you're a parent of a child who has extraordinary skills in anything, then you're going to be very proud of that child. And if you're a parent of a child who has particular skills athletically, if you're the dad, you may be taking it far too personally, and you may be living vicariously through your son or daughter and it's dads, predominantly, who do that. I want to uh, just read this column by Bill Plasky, and uh, then we're going to be speaking with a um, bioethicist from uh, New York Medical Center, University of New York, New York U, uh, Dr. Arthur Kaplan, who's been a guest on this show many times. So just have a listen. Please. Uh, The son suffered his first injury when he lost a tooth on a Brentwood basketball court. He picked it up, threw it to the sidelines, and kept playing as the father cheered the greatest athlete he'd ever seen. Aidan Cullen was eight. I should have said, stop, are you okay, said Mark Cullen, but I heard other parents saying, whoa, that's a tough kid, so I did nothing. The son once passed out at the end of a soccer game after suffering from exhaustion and dehydration. He was packed in ice and a few hours later played in another game while the father basked in the glory of his star. Aidan Cullen was in middle school. I thought he died, but then I was glad he kept playing, said Mark Cullen. Everybody cheered him so much I felt like they were cheering for me. I loved it. I loved the power of it. Ten years later, that perception of stardom has fallen and the feeling of power is gone. And the only thing that Mark Cullen carries in his giant sports duffel bag is regret. His son Aiden has been in almost constant pain for several years after being diagnosed with a disease partially caused by being pushed to play sports through injury and affliction. At one point, he thought about suicide. Today, he feels lucky if he can physically show up for a high school baseball practice. I went from the best to the worst, Aiden said. The pain was so bad, I didn't want to be alive. Mark Cullen has been feeling a different sort of pain from guilt over his son's condition. He's also separated from wife Rebecca after spending years being an absentee husband while shoving Aiden toward their combined dreams. I pushed too far, did too much, helped break up my family, and actually put my son's life in jeopardy, all because I was seduced by his talent, said Mark. As a parent, that is devastating, and I'm so ashamed. This is about how that shame, far from being singular to this well-meaning Santa Monica dad, is probably shared by many who don't possess the self-awareness to admit it. This is about the dangerous triumvirate that dominates neighborhood playing fields across the country, a three-headed demon that turns children's games into adult crusades and happy childhoods into ones filled with injury and insecurity. This is about parents, youth sports, and ego. This is about one West Side family, but also many families, strong and solid households, that suddenly find themselves torn apart over their child's ability to kick a soccer ball or sink a basket. This is the story of one struggle 
but also every struggle to balance the child's happiness in sports with the parent's desire to not only promote that glory but share in it. Mark Cullen, an established screenwriter, wanted to begin the new year by acknowledging the biggest villain in his most important story is himself. I ruined my son's high school sports career and almost his life, a cautionary tale, read the subject line in an email he sent to this newspaper in January. He detailed the familiar story of a parent pushing a child into athletic oblivion, causing long-term damage to the entire family. He agreed to expand on his remorse despite the embarrassment it might cause him across a landscape where obnoxious sports parents are rarely held accountable with more than a frown and a sigh. If I can help one parent not make the same mistakes I made, then it's worth it, Cullen said. If you know one of those parents, give this story to them. If you're becoming one of those parents, read it now. The dad was an athlete. Of course he was. At age 52, Mark Cullen is a six-foot-three former basketball star who was invited to walk on at UCLA before breaking his ankle. He eventually gave up the idea of playing sports and wound up writing for television and movies. He and his brother Rob have created several TV series, including Lucky for FX, but his shortened athletic career was also in the back of his mind. When his son Aiden was born 17 years ago, he had a second chance. He was living out some of his excitement about sports through Aiden, said his estranged wife, Rebecca. I wanted to support our son, so I kept my mouth shut, but I should have said something. Aiden began playing basketball at age six. He was as big as nine-year-olds and tougher. He would chase down other kids and fight them for the ball while his father shouted with joy. He was thrown out of two Westside Youth Leagues because of rough play. He was never disciplined by his coach because it was his father. I thought, I'm going to coach him because I'm not going to let anybody ruin him, said Mark. Turns out I ruined him myself. Aiden eventually played three sports, all with his father on the sidelines or in the stands, which meant they could spend eight hours a day together on various fields throughout the Southland, while Rebecca and Cullen's other son, Beckett, now 14, stayed home. Aiden was becoming a neighborhood star, but the cost was slowly growing. There just wasn't effort or time to put into the connecting uh, uh, as a couple or a family, says Rebecca. Sports became all-encompassing and really sort of ridiculous. As the stakes grew, so did Mark's involvement. He would scream at Aiden from the bench. He would pull him out of games for mistakes. He would scold that a double would have been a triple if only his son had worked harder in practice. It got so I just wanted to play well to make him happy, said Aiden. I would find myself looking at him on the sidelines after every play to see if he was smiling. Once the game ended... The stress would worsen. Aiden's biggest dread was the car ride home. I'd be in the middle of the game thinking of the car ride home. How can I make it better? How can I keep him from yelling at me, said Aiden. Several men who coached with Cullen agreed that he was tough, but none described him as crazy. Mark is a super tough, intensive dad, but the scariest part for me is there's so many worse parents than him, said Matt Steinhaus, former fellow youth league coach and current athletic director and baseball coach at New Road School. By the time Aiden had enrolled at Windward School in seventh grade, the injuries and overexertion finally caught up with him. His, the seventh grade, folks, his body began to hurt and never stopped hurting. The pain struck his knees, then smothered his back, finishing his dreams. As a little guy, Aiden was a stud, said Tyrone Powell, Windward Athletic Director, but by the eighth grade it was all gone. He was often too injured to practice. Some days he was in too much pain he couldn't even get out of bed. I thought, I'm going to feel like, if I'm going to feel like this for the rest of my life, for a year straight every day I wanted to kill myself. But by the spring, year of his, uh, by the spring of his junior year, he was finally diagnosed with a neurological disorder called Central Pain Syndrome a condition in which damage to the central nervous system can cause constant pain. Doctors told Cullen that one of the causes was that Aiden constantly played hurt. He quit sports for several months and began dealing with the disease with a combination of medicine and physical therapy. He eventually felt better, and his love of baseball led him to rejoin the Windward team this winter for his senior season. But the nagging injuries have returned, and his contribution will probably be limited. He's trying to play but it's physically difficult for him, said Powell, and we would never put a kid on the field if he wasn't physically ready. Mark Cullen understands that now. He came forward with his story in hopes of sharing that understanding. The reason I'm doing this is because of how much I love my son. I adore him. I'm so very proud of him for enduring this brutal disease that I, have, may, that I may have helped cause, he said. I want parents to realize we're pushing our kids way too hard. 
Don't do travel leagues. Don't play year-round. Kids will find their way. This winter, Aiden received an important letter, but not the kind you put on a sweater. It was a notice from New York University that he'd been accepted into the Tisch School of Arts to study his new passion of photography. Upon hearing the news, Mark briefly reverted to old habits by saying, that's great. How's their baseball team? Aiden, newly empowered, responded, I don't know if I'm going to play. Mark took a deep breath and, having reached a new acceptance, finally smiled. That's fine. That's fine, he said. I wanted you to hear that. Um, because I, I just have a feeling it'll touch some people. It'll reach some people. It may make a difference for some people. And it may help a kid. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Dr. Arthur Kaplan is the founding director of New York University's Langone Medical Center's Division of Medical Ethics. He uh, is one of the foremost bioethicists in the United States. He's written many great books. My favorite is Smart Mice, Not So Smart People. Boy, is that ever true. Uh, Dr. Kaplan, (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much for uh, taking the time. How often do you hear stories about parents who just live vicariously through the athletic, particularly the athletic skills of their kids? A lot. Too much. And we hear from the orthopedic surgeons in my place at New York University that kids are constantly showing up with overuse injuries, meaning too much pitching, too much tennis elbow, too much... uh, pull on the shoulders from too much swimming, this sort of thing, or uh, just plain psychologically worn out. And the parents push the kids. I'll tell you something, Roy. We did a study uh, in the high schools in Connecticut, southwest Connecticut, and uh, we were interested in bullying and finding out uh, what was going on with respect to kids picking on other kids. And long story short, what we found out was that there's a little bit of bullying. It's not that bad. But parents are the source of a lot of the troubles. They're all over the kids. They're yelling at the refs. They're screaming at the refs when they come into the parking lot to go home from hockey games and this sort of thing. Parents really are not, well, they're often not serving the best interests of the kid. I remember going to um, a baseball game, kids' baseball game. Um, took a little guy there and sat in the stands and watched and and, you know, kids grow at different rates of speed when they're mm-hmm. 8, 10, 12 years of age. I guess they were maybe, I don't know, I, I, I want to say 8, but I think probably 10 or 11. And there was one little guy, particularly little for his for his age. He was a little, little, little guy. And the baseball helmet wobbled on his head. You know, you can see him at the plate. I don't, <laughs> I don't need to say any more than that. You can see him. And the bat is held in, I don't know what he was thinking he was going to do with it, but he was up there. And the batter, the pitcher seemed to take uh, some pity on him, and he was just sort of lobbing the ball in. And this huge guy in front of me, huge guy, Dr. Kaplan, screaming at the little kid, hit the ball, come on, batter, swing, hit the ball, what's wrong with you, you punk? Something like that. And it got nasty. And I said to him, would you give the kid a break? He looked back at at me and he said, and you can hear it coming, my kid. Yeah, yeah. I felt so sorry for the little guy. Still do. And, you know, a lot of parents, they think when they see their kid in one of these Little League-type games or uh, one of the midget or bantam hockey things, they think, this kid's really outstanding. He's going places or she's going places. And they've got the scholarship in their hand and uh, thinking even about the pros and you, you and I both know what the odds are against that. I mean, it's more likely that the kid is going to win the Nobel Prize in medicine, probably, than they're going to make it to the NHL. Yeah, with, the without a medical level. degree. So, you know, th- this kind of pressure doesn't make any sense. Plus, if you're really going to uh, do things that damage the kid, put them in a traveling team so that they got to play 365, if you ever want to see somebody burn out, tell them they got to, you know, at age eight, uh, play everything. I, I talked recently, you may have uh, uh, remembered this guy, Andrews, who's one of the leading orthopedic surgeons in the U.S. He does a lot of the Tommy John procedures yes. for baseball yes. people. Yes. He told me that um, he thinks the best thing that can happen to a young athlete as they develop is to play many sports, 
partly because that's what they like to do if they enjoy doing different things, but it's better for their joints, they're developing bones, they're developing bodies. Just doing the same thing over and over again at age eight, boy, that's a recipe he said for injury, and he sees the injured, so I would trust him. You know, uh, we were doing uh, this this topic a number of years ago, and uh, with, with quite a few phone calls, I forget what the story was, but there, there was a, a big news story attached to the fact that we were doing it. And a little guy called in, said he was 12 years of age, and he was with his dad. And he was on the phone in the car with his dad, and he was telling his dad about why he plays sports. I wish, I'd, I wish we'd kept that. It was so amazing <laughs> to listen. And the dad's in the car with him. And he's telling him, you know, you don't let me play. You don't, you're always yelling. You always want me to do something else. Whatever I want to do, you tell me to do something else. I don't know what to do. It was so quite over, amazing to hear. And, and you might think, too, here's a tip for parents that I've seen, again, in looking at this uh, Connecticut study we did. Um, they do have coaches. They're there. They usually sit near the other athletes, and they're supposed to coach them. So you may think you're the coach as a parent, you may think you know best, but you ought to let the coach coach. And if you think you're really good at it, then apply to be the coach mm-hmm. or volunteer to be an assistant coach. But coming in part-time with your vast knowledge of whatever you've watched on TV or read about in the sports page doesn't make you a good coach of a young kid. And if it's your kid, I think it's even worse because for some of the reasons we're talking about, you start to build a lot of anger and hostility between the uh, parent and the kid. So you got to let the coaches coach. you got to let the refs ref. It's, uh, what do we call it, for fun? It's kind of fun. That's the word, isn't it? The F-U-1 word. Yeah, yeah. Let and them have fun. If they don't have fun, I think there's no point. I don't actually care if the kid goes on to become uh, college eligible or get a scholarship or, you know, make their way into the lowest levels of uh the professional ranks. I think, again, you're up against long, long odds. What you really want to do with sports is make them fun so that your kid stays healthy and does athletic things or exercise throughout their life. It's great that they pick up some sports they can uh, enjoy, but it would be nice, too, if they pick up some activities like tennis or golf or swimming or something or running that they could do forever as part of what they learn to like, and that's usually you know, some of those skills are in the training side. So you have to ask yourself, what are we doing this for? Are we doing it to groom the one in a billion chance that we're going to produce, uh, you know, the next uh, outstanding star of baseball or hockey or whatever, or make it to the Olympics? Uh, or am I trying to uh, let the kid have fun and uh, give him some lifelong skills? I don't know about you, Roy, but when I played sports as a kid, and admittedly that was back in the 16th century, but when I was doing it, <laughs> A lot of the sports we played, we didn't have any coaches. We played pickup games. Yeah, we did. And had yeah. a great time. Yeah, we did. Reffed them, them ourselves. We yeah. didn't need parents to guide us. Yeah. Um, we had a lot of fun. <laughs> that was a lot of fun. Dr. Kaplan, thank you so much. I, I wanted to read that story, and I'm glad you were uh, able to come on the air with hey, us and doctors about pleasure. it. Thank you so much. Good, good to talk to you again. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. 